Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast where you apply your board game min-maxing skills to your schedule so that you can fit in more gaming. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing absolutely wonderfully. Finally have good weather. We are into the summer-style months here in Minneapolis, and it's 82 outside. It's sunny, it's gorgeous, life's good. Yeah, I actually am down in my basement studio where it's uh, quite air-conditioned, so it's pretty chilly down here, actually, and I made the mistake of stepping outside a few minutes ago and went, dang, it's hot out. Yeah, it is. It is heaty. It's it's warm out there. I uh, went for a walk in jeans, and that was probably the wrong decisions. I probably should have walked in shorts. Now, have you looked at the weather forecast, Jake? We're looking at four inches of rain over the next five days. Ooh, sounds like a good time to sit inside and play games. Agreed. Yes. Amen. Speaking of games, what you get played this week, Jake? So it was actually a really good gaming week for gaming, even though I played very few games with you. Um, This past week, I went down to Austin, Texas for my bachelor party with a whole bunch of guys, and we were able to play a few games, and most of them being the drinking varietal, but we were able to get some games played as well. We went to a small board game cafe called Emerald Tavern in Austin to play with a internet friend of ours, Kyle, which was absolutely wonderful. And so we did that all Sunday. We were able to play a whole bunch of games and we sat outside in the shade in a beautiful Austin day. So we were able to play Container, which was designed by Franz Benno, Delange and Thomas Ewart and published by Mercury Games, at least the edition we played, which was the 10th anniversary edition. So I saw your Instagram post of you guys sitting outside at that game cafe playing that. You did nothing to dispel any Minneapolis stereotypes, Jake. Let me just say that. What was that? What was that? The big beard? You looked a little wooly, my friend. I know. Anna got so mad at me when I came <laughs> home. I've already actually had to trim it. It's already happened. It's already starting to go away. And I don't think I trimmed it down enough for her or her taste. So this game store, huge shout out to Emerald Games over in uh, Austin, Texas. I think it's on the north side of town. It was just wonderful. It stayed open from I think their hours were till midnight almost every single day of the week. The food was great. The coffee was great. We had some smoothies. We sat outside in kind of a shaded pavilion area by the entrance of the thing on comfortable chairs. It was just a wonderful day of gaming. But have you heard anything about Container Mark? I know it took Kickstarter by the reins back in the day, but I I almost kickstarted it, but I ended up not. Did you know about it back in the day? You know, there is this group of legendary heavier weight games that were published, I don't know, 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago that are talked about and have been out of print forever. And because they're out of print, I never see them. I never get a chance to play them. And they just aren't in my game group. So when they do come back to Kickstarter, I don't know anything about them. And invariably, after the fact, I find out that, oh, this is really an awesome game and you're kind of an idiot for not Kickstarting that back when it was on board. I would put Brass Birmingham into that camp where I didn't find it out about it till after the fact. And I'm like, oh, you idiot, you should have Kickstarted that. Fortunately, I was able to recover from that mistake. And now, I'm, from what I understand, I may need to recover from the mistake of not backing container. Right. It was funny. So I played this game in a four player thing with my friend Jack, who lives in Madison, cousin Tyler and myself and Kyle. And immediately when we were leaving the game, we were just talking about how much we love container. And we'll talk about it in a little more detail what you're doing in this game. But we immediately started bothering Mark about acquiring this game on the secondary market. You're mean. We're like, Mark, you're going to love this game. Please figure <laughs> it out. You could bling it. Maybe you could 3D print it. We're just trying to be creative about this, all this stuff. But it is such a wonderful game. So let's talk a little bit about the background of what you're actually doing in container. So in container, you are different shipping companies that are shipping different commodities, which are represented by 
four or five different colored containers to different things. So you can produce them with factories, you can market them in your warehouses, and then you can also ship them on your actual large little resin ship that was about, I think, seven inches long and actually drive it to the little island and then everybody will bid on it. So this is a very financial game. A lot of money's trading hands, similar to a lot of the other games that we like, think of maybe estates or something, but it's not only driven by auctions like other games. So what you can actually do is you can build your factories, your factories will produce the goods, but you can't buy your own goods and put them on your dock that you produced. Other people get to buy them. So you get it for each different good you produce, you get to determine a certain value of them ranking between I think it's two and four, maybe a little more, maybe it's two and five on the actual sheet. And then let's say Mark produced something that I really want. I can straight up buy it from him. I don't need to worry about logistics or anything getting it to my warehouse. But now I can market it for any value on my warehouse. I think those ranges are from like two till six or something along those lines with price per good. But what that ends up doing, oh, pardon me, one more thing. And then you can also park your little boat and actually buy those goods off of people's warehouses and take them to the main island where people can buy them. So what's really interesting is you can't quite carve out an efficiency like I'm going to produce my things to then sell them to myself, to then market them, to then put them on my boat, to then pass them all the way down to the island to then make a whole bunch of victory points. You really need to see what's situationally happening on the board, be able to read that situation and be able to determine what you should do. What I really like about this game compared to other games, recently we discussed about Chicago Express, about it's kind of hard to really internalize the obtuse strategy in that game. And when you're playing with newer players, you can really get them lost in the weeds and they can way overbid for something that's not even close to that value that'll take them out of the game towards the end of the game. You can't really do that here. So I actually really think you should buy this one, Mark, because your family would like it, but it's heavy financial goodness that we like. So mm. when I produce a good, I put it on my thing to be bought by anyone at the table from a value from one till four. I, I did remember actually it was, it was one to four. And you can buy that. But I can't price this thing for a bajillion dollars, like $16 a unit. And then Tyler will pay me $16 a unit because he doesn't really know what's happening in the game. And then he can sell it on his warehouse. Whenever you sell in your warehouse, it's any value from two to six. So the same thing there. There's just a little bit of guide rails to make sure that people don't make dumb decisions with overspending too much money and actually physically getting the goods. The only thing you can do is when you actually land it on the island, everybody gets to bid on it. And it's a secret blind bid. And then whoever actually owns the ship that's driving it to the island can then choose to pay the highest bidder, however much it costs. So if somebody bids like $17, which and everybody else bid like four, and the guy just completely overpaid, the person who's actually driving the boat is going to get that $17 and a little bit more money from the government in the form of $17 as well. So you can bring in too much money that way, but there's just enough guideposts on it to really hammer it home. So it's a bit like um, having the bumper rails on the sides of, bo of a bowling alley. That is exactly the term I'm needing for, um, needing for <laughs> it, because we played with Jack is a very smart guy and he gets games pretty quickly, but I, he doesn't play his games as frequently as Tyler or me or you or Kyle. So he was able to still play the game and he was in it. He probably wasn't going to win. But I still think he was able to interact with the game in a meaningful way and didn't just, oh, oops, I lost kind of thing. I did sure. end up winning. So take that, Kyle. I figured it out. Just barely. though. I think I won by like $6 in a 170-something point game. But it is a wonderful game. Yeah, and I would assume that's actually the output I would have predicted. In a, in a game where you've got a constrained market, where it limits what you can price and what you can pay, 
I was about to guess that the results are probably repeatable and that the better players win, but also that there is not a dramatic difference between first and last place, like, you know, 15% rather than 100%. That's actually not the case. There was a pretty really? dramatic thing. Okay. Um, so in our play, the most recent one, let me let me pull it up real quick on Board Game Geek. So on our play on Board Game Geek, the top score was me with 172. Second place was Kyle with 160. Third place was Tyler with 80. And last Ooh. place was Jack with 60. So there was a drastic difference. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but it wasn't. Those guys didn't say, oops, I paid too much. I lost the game. It was a myriad of small actions they took that weren't as efficient or weren't properly timed or XYZ reason that they didn't quite finish it to be able to get with the big boys. So it's different. It's not an oops, I lost. It's a, oh, I didn't play that well kind of thing. Sure. If that makes sense. So sure. Well, and I think you bring up an interesting point around the accessibility of economic and financial games is too many of them aren't. They're opaque to get into the strategy and opaque to get into the pricing. I mean, even looking at something that's as family friendly, if you will, as a states, at the end of the day, the pricing on that is incredibly opaque to try to figure out what to bid on something and how much to price it at. And, right. you know, a game that helps hold your hand a little bit on that and introduce those concepts yet in still with deep, meaningful gameplay is something that actually I think would be an excellent episode for the future. Introductory economic games. Right. And don't get me wrong. I don't think this is an introductory game. I don't think no, it's a stepping sure stone not. in any right. way. It's just no, no, no. a slightly more accessible deep game that's just as deep as the rest and has all these sweet economic interactions. It's just there's a slight amount of guideposting that made it so I think you could really get it played with somebody that's not as much of a gamer. Like, I think if we're Jack were to play it again, he'd be doing a lot better, but he wasn't ever completely out of the game. He was still interacting with stuff. Yeah, so let's call it accessible economic games. Perfect. Completely agree. So that has been at it's been on my wish list for a while, but it has been moved up to very top. And I'm going to hopefully find a copy of it somewhere because, oh, man, was it awesome. I really want you guys to try it. So is this actually commercially available right now? Like, can I go to Amazon and buy this thing? I haven't looked. So there's two editions. So you were 100 percent right. This is of the camp of games that are about 10 years old that got reprinted in a big, beautiful edition. And we felt dumb for missing the Kickstarters. The 10th edition of this game is massive. The boats were like literally eight or nine inches long, maybe seven, seven to eight, nine <laughs> inches long. And the little containers are small little like inch long by quarter inch little containers. And they all slot on the little boat. It is a wonderful production for the physical pieces. The actual graphic design of like the actual player mats are really bad, but that's fine. We could reprint it or something. The bad news and the good news about this is that uh, the bad news is, is that I'm looking on Amazon right now and uh, I can get it for $319.99 with free shipping from Amazon. Ooh, easy. It's available. Yes, that's the bad news. The good news is, is after you talking to me about it, I went online and figured out how I can print and play this thing, including 3D printed ships. So I being that it's not actually available, I can do that and not feel bad about it. Got it. Yeah, but it was awesome. I'm still going to try to see if I can find a real copy and then we can feel not bad about it at all. By the way, yeah, <laughs> comically, Amazon tells me besides container that I might also be interested in deluxe Bunko and tin container. Of course, you're going to need those. Of course. Of course. Because <laughs> Bunko container. and Container, you know? <laughs> that, those fit together. It's board games and it's fancy containers. Of course, that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Oh, that sounds great. Yep. We need to get this. Absolutely. And just a quick little mogul scale on it. I'm going to give it a 3D. Also, while in Austin, we were able to play, we had a bunch of people. So we were able to play one of my favorite card games called Teach You by Urs Hostetter and published by Rio Grande Games and a whole other people. 
we've talked about this game ad nauseum on the podcast. Listen to pretty much any other podcast to hear about it. We're huge fans, me and you, but I never get to play it to the level I want. And that's because I had this realization that we never have like the selection of four people. Usually what we do is at a game night, we'll be like, okay, well, I have a game that can play three, four, five pretty well. Who wants to play? And you're running a game that'll run three, four or five well. So maybe four will go to you and three will go to me. But we can't just be like, okay, I'm playing Teach You. I need two other people. Mark and I are partners. That exact thing has been absolutely killing me in gaming lately because there are two games that I really need. Well, I, I could do it with three or four, but like Wildcatters, I have not been able to play Wildcatters yet just because of the fact that I've been told pretty specifically that you need to play that with four. There's never been a time that we've had exactly four. Also, I've been now waiting for six weeks to play the Norwegians uh, Feast for Odin. Right. Like how long we, is this going to go? Oh, it's making me crazy. So there was snow on the ground when we talked about it first. I know. I, you know, a thought on that one. If you read the Teach You rulebook, and I know you have not because you can't stand card game rulebooks. No, I did read it. That's the issue. I tried to read it. I don't know if any of the information was digested <laughs> or not. Okay. There are. So that game, technically speaking, plays up to like nine. Yeah, but it can't be good at. Th- so I read the rules. I for don't, three. Is it? I don't know. I read the I've rules never, for three. I've you have a pretend it. partner in three. Well, that sounds garbage. Right. And so I read that. And then the six person one goes down. I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah, maybe we could figure it out. But anywho, I taught the game to my cousin who always comes to the cabin with us and he loved it. So I think it's going to work out well at the cabin because we have so many people at the cabin. My whole extended family goes to the cabin every weekend in the summer. So I can say, okay. I have me and Tyler going to be partners. We need two other partners or two people to be partners to play against us. Let's play this. And so I actually ended up buying a second copy of this game just to leave at the cabin. It's the cabin's game. It's going to be the game of the summer. It's going to be the summer of George and the summer of Tichu. That's something that I actually have made a very active attempt at introducing to my family lately, too. Like my father, we got to play this game back at the recent family holiday and he enjoyed it quite a bit. It took him a couple rounds to figure it out, but that's something that now that most people in our family know how to play it, I think is going to get played a lot more among our family as well. Agreed. So Tichu is still wonderful. I love teaching it. I'm excited to actually be able to dig into it some, with some players that know how to play it, though. Moving forward, the other game that we got to play on the trip to Austin was a game that I don't think you've ever heard of before. No, I was looking at this thinking, what? I have no idea what this game is. Right. And so I get kind of weird about art and games, and this is definitely one that triggered the, oh, it's really pretty. I'm just going to buy it. Hopefully it's a good game. I'm speaking of Caper by Unai Rubio and published by Keymaster Games. This is a game about bitter little olive things that look like peas, right? Of course. Right. Yeah. Pickled little green guys that taste really salty and briny. No, it's about being robbers so you are different heistmen different uh different groups of thieves trying to take over three different places that are going on heist between you and a rival crew at the same night so there's three different locations and these completely change the game whether you be in london paris or rome you take out a certain number of cards and add them into the deck that you're going to play but it's actually a really good game and i really highly suggest if you've never heard of this game before look up the art it is absolutely beautiful Keymaster Games is the people who did Control. Do you remember that one, Mark? No. I brought you to their booth at Gen Con. You might not remember. They did a Control game, which is a two to three player. It has a four player rules too, but it gets really long game. And it just has this most gorgeous art style to it and really well produced game. And this game is no different. So what you're doing in Caper that's really neat, it's a back and forth card game where it's split between different rounds where you're going to play down your thieves, thieves, pardon me, or you're going to put crew on them. 
But what's neat about it is every time that you play a card, let's say I have six cards in my hand and I play a card on XYZ location. And then my partner plays or the person I'm playing against plays a card on his location. Then we need to trade hands and it's a two player only game. So you really know what's happening with each card. So it's almost like you're drafting while you're playing cards. So I was in a scenario where I had two cards. One of them was really good for me, but I'd give him a good card that he could play. So I ended up playing the less good card for me and putting him in a position where he could not really play the other card that I gave to him. So I felt like an absolute meanie and it was really, really, really cool. I really want to try it with you. It's a two player only game, so it's probably going to sit in the shelf of opportunity for a while. It's a good one. I liked Caper a lot. I'm going to try to get back out more often. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the art, too. I love the little ship illustrations on there. Those are really cool. But it looks like a Wes Anderson movie. But I do want to take a step back and go, you must not have actually had my attention when you showed me control, because I'm looking at that one right now. And that looks really cool. (laughs) Is that for sale? Yeah, (laughs) I I think it is. I mean, I have my signed copy. It came with metal coins inside it, too. I know it looks beautiful. Why? Why was I not paying attention to this? I don't know. And they did this oh. game called Campy Creatures. They're, they're a publisher I like. They actually more recently did a Kickstarter for a game about the national parks. I think it's called Trekking. And you are going to, it's like commissioned with the National Parks Board and stuff. So it's art from all of the different national parks. And it looks beautiful too. I heard of that one for sure. It, it's funny, as we were looking down the show notes tonight, I looked at this and said, man, I've never heard of this game. Why are we talking about this? And uh, <sighs> you, you've piqued my interest, Jake. I will keep on adding it to the game bag. It's a good two-player game. I've actually brought it a lot to games. I just haven't been able to play it because we just usually don't play two-player games. But it's really neat. The rulebook's a little weak, and it's kind of hard to digest. You really need to play to figure out how it's working, and the rulebook's just not super helpful with that. But it's a good game. On our mogul scale, I'd give it a 2B. Nice and simple. So we'll get it played sometime. Cool. That sounds great. And you got to play another game that I've been dying to play and still have not had a chance to either. So this past Wednesday last night, we you actually were there. So you got to see us play it. But you came a little later. So you got to see the tail end of it. I played Gentis by Stefan Reeshaus in TMG Games. I taught it to John, who hasn't played it the first time, and he absolutely spanked us with it. So in Gentis. <laughs> boy, John. Yeah, good job. <laughs> Talked about it last episode, so I'll give a quick and brief description here. Um, you are just different civilizations building up in the Mediterranean. And this is done by really interesting. It's not worker placement. It's technically action selection, followed by some time mechanism that gobs up your spots and your slots for action selection. So imagine that like you have a certain variable amount of workers in a worker placement game, depending on what actions you take, more will take it. You have a fixed number of them. And then once you're done, you're done. What's cool about it, though, most is it seems to have really, really smart mechanisms that are pulled together in a fun way to make a really fast Euro game seem a little different than the other ones. There's a lot to learn, and I don't know why, because John is one of the smartest gamers I play with. I could not convey to him a convenient way to explain one of the building things, and I felt like such a bad teacher. There's a certain area of the board that whenever you lay a building in general, you can activate all of the actions of all your buildings within that region. There's a certain offboard area that you can also lay buildings in, but whenever you lay a building there, you just pretend it's one of the different colored regions and you activate all your buildings in that region. And I don't know why, but he just couldn't figure that out. And I felt so bad that I couldn't teach it to him. So I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board and see if I can teach it a different way when I actually finally teach it to you. But it's a good one. I'm still liking it a lot. I'm still trying to get it played more often. I'm going to game a lot this weekend with Tyler and we're just going to pretty much dig into it. So. Gentis by Stephen Reeshaus and TMG Games. It's a good one. 
So one thing I was really happy about the fact is we bemoan the fact often that a lot of times you and I end up running games at different tables at the same time. So we never get to play. And last night I decided, darn it, I- I'm breaking that chain. <laughs> we well, it's are funny because you did break it, but it didn't make my life any easier. So due to weird circumstances, <laughs> I was the only guy who brought games last night. You didn't think you were going to show up. You thought you were going to show up late because of work. And then a couple of the other guys just kind of didn't bring games. You know, they were like, oh, Mark will bring something or we'll figure it out or Jake will have something. And they all wanted to play Concordia. And I was like, that's great. We had six people. So we're going to break apart into two different tables. And I was like, OK, I'm the only person with games. Mark probably can't run Concordia well enough to actually play on that table. I'm going to have to run two games at the same time. So I sat down, set up the game at Concordia for the three player map. That was the best. And I taught the game while Tyler was setting up Gentis. And then I came back over and taught that game all the while my food was getting cold and I was running out of breath and being very winded and practicing for this podcast because now I can sustain talk for about eight minutes. Oh, it was ridiculous. You really were distracted because Tyler wasn't setting up Gentis. He was setting up Clans of Caledonia. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was setting up Clans of Caledonia. That's how distracted I was. (laughs) Jeez. Well, it's amazing, though. And to speak on how fast of gamers we are is me, you and Tyler played Clans of Caledonia in the same time. It took three other fast gamers to play Concordia. So Clans of Caledonia went fast. And I think they all liked Concordia. Brent was saying he was going to buy it while he was finishing up the game and shouting at us from the other table. So that's usually a good good thing about a game. And to be fair, too, I don't recall really any instances other than really one quick moment where you really were just clarifying, oh, that's not the rule book. But other than that, right. once you taught them, they were up and running full well. So I'm going to assume you actually uh, did a good job on this teach, Jake. I think it also speaks to the benefits of Concordia being such a wonderful system and such a wonderful game. We've been having this thing with uh, show up times and the end ending so much. I haven't played like a lot of meteor stuff in a while. And I know Clans of Caledonia isn't a super meaty game or anything, but it's a little bit more than Concordia. And I just wanted to play something a little heavier. So we got into Clans of Caledonia. It's a full size game. And this was my second playthrough of it. And golly, I actually think for a variety of reasons, I probably enjoy that more than it's Kissing Cousins, Terra Mystica and Gaia Project. Right. I see. I don't know if I agree with you there. However, from a collection management standpoint, I could totally understand people saying, I'm going to own Clans of Caledonia. I can get it to the table more often. It's easier for me. Bam. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Maybe that's why I'm enjoying this one a little bit more because that extra 10% less allows the rules to stick in my brain and I can understand what's going on better. I I notoriously get lost in (laughs) Gaia Project and Terra Mystica every time I play them. Right. Definitely. It's not that their rules are too hard. I, I have a hard time seeing the forest in that one and I don't know why. Absolutely. And just for the listeners who don't quite remember and know what's going on here, Clans of Caledonia is a Euro style conversion resource management game with a board area that with that's hexagons and you're putting your little pieces out on it. It's compared often to Terra Mystica and it's Terra Mystica 2.0 Gaia Project, which are both very venerated Euro games. And they're all kind of compared in that way. Clans of Caledonia is, I think, objectively the lightest rules wise of all of them. I'd agree. Yep. A lot of people compare the two. I only own two of the three. I don't own Terra Mystica. I just have Gaia Project and Clans of Caledonia, and I have no need to buy the other ones. I do have a question for you, though, Mark. Yeah. I usually feel smart when I play games. Like, I can understand why and all these mechanisms and these things that I have, and I make sure to utilize all these aspects of it. Clans of Caledonia makes me feel kind of dumb because I feel like if there's all of these options and abilities that I have that I don't quite use to the right degree in that game and i don't consider all the options so for example yeah 
I was talking to you about this. You were like, are you sure there's no way I can remove my distillery production off this board to make another settlement? And I was like, I'm sorry, Mark, there isn't. But had we been smart, I would have like placed or you would have placed a cow there. But that happened to me at least six or seven times where I'm like, okay, cool. I just got rid of those cows. Now, look, my board is ruined and the entire my position is ruined because I did not plan that correctly. And I made a huge linchpin on my settlements being around that one cow that I knew I'd kill. Yeah, I agree with you on this one that I think the decision space as we play it more is larger than we initially gave it credit to. In fact, I'm going back looking at our Gaming Moguls rating page at GamingMoguls.com slash MogulScale thinking that we might actually we might (laughs) you like how I did that. We might. That was not on purpose, by the way. We might need to rethink the rating on this one. And it's rated at 3C currently. I think you could make a reasonable argument for this being a 3D. I think so, too. It's definitely lighter than Gaia Project. And I think that's why we didn't want to rank them similar. But I think within the play of what a D is, they can both exist in that space. Yeah. And I think you could definitely say that is Clans of Caledonia on the soft side of the D and Gaia Project's on the harder side of the D. No question about it. I think there definitely (laughs) is there. A few other thoughts with playing through it is that, yeah, I think the decision space is bigger than I gave it credit for. I remember lots of times looking at it thinking, wow, there's a bunch of things I could do right now. Do I build a cheese factory? I mean, that's what my faction is really good at. uh, I think I had the the McDonald's or whatever they were that allowed you to build. I was the Campbell's, correct. The one that allows you to build uh, luxury good factories at a reduced price. And I think where I really went wrong was that I did not lean into that anywhere near hard enough. I should have just built those things like crazy and then worked outwards from there. I sort of did a little bit too much of a uh, peanut butter spread approach to strategy on that one. And my score (laughs) represented that. Uh, that approach. Did. It was a good week of gaming for me. I won a bunch. Yeah. And I think you had the clan that allowed you to like live in the lakes and be fishermen and travel around there. So you doubled down on making sure you had as many settlements as possible. And that allowed you to absolutely smash Tyler and I. Yeah. And the other thing about this game is whenever you build adjacent to someone's production facility, you're allowed to buy those resources from them for a discounted price. I feel like I used that right. three times in the game. Every single time I play, it's like, oh, once I did it just because we were close. One time I did it because we were close. And the final one, I was like, oh, I could use those and I'll sell them later in the next round or something. But like, I feel like you could really lean into that and really optimize some of the decisions you're making in this game and play it really well. I think this game has a high threshold to showing off to your friends that you're really smart. And I am not to that threshold. One of the limiting factors for me was the fact that a lot of the what do they call them? Export contracts or whatever they are, the, uh, the little things you're trying to fill with your goods. Most of those had very high meat requirements, and I just I hadn't doubled down on meat. I was really heavy into luxury goods. So a lot of those just didn't apply to what I was doing. Right. And that can kind of be the issue. And then I probably didn't explain to you enough that once you finish your luxury goods, you can go hunting for new export contracts in the bag and you get a draw three and keep one. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's still a lot to digest. I think it's a good one. It's not a beginner game by any by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a little bit more accessible than Gaia Project and such. And I think it's just a great game. I'm still such a fan of Clans of Caledonia. I agree. Let's play that one more. Let's do it. I did get a chance to play last Wednesday when you were off at your bachelor party or getting ready to go to your bachelor party. I don't remember which it was, but I was uh, we had a- flying on Wednesday. Got it. We had an awesome group there Wednesday night and we ended up playing kind of a mishmash of what I'd call thinky fillers. You know, the one, one and a half hour games rather than trying to play one long one because we had a bunch of people in and out. 
And one of the games we got to play is one of my absolute new favorites. I talked about it last episode. This is Town Center by Albin Viard and Ludi Creations. And have some more thoughts on this one, Jake. Good. Uh, Town Center by, I'm going to actually talk about it more later on in this episode. So <laughs> it's almost the reason this episode exists is to right. talk about this. The reason Detra. Yeah. And what I found in playing it a second time through, this is a very abstract city builder, but it's a city builder in 3D where you are trying to both place things and cause them to grow organically to increase your income. And by developing the best city in terms of what's your commercial output and what's your number of residences, residences, residents <laughs> at the end of the game determines on how well you do in the game. And that's a really challenging little puzzle. And the people at the table that love challenging puzzles loved it. Like Steven with the whole game through was cackling and, you know, doing the Dr. Evil pose and <laughs> everything just, oh, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I, oh, oh, oh and, and he smashed us, you know, in typical Steven fashion. Of course he did. Yeah. And so I think he really loved it. Uh, John, who joined us, likes a social game a little bit more. And I think he loved it, but I don't know that it was his favorite game. So. You know, I think there's a little self-selection there. I did find it to be a little more challenging to teach than it probably should be after a second playthrough. And most of that is due to two spaces. Number one is there's a very clear distinction on what's a block and what is a unit. You know, a block is a cube. A unit is a group of cubes that makes up a specific apartment. You can have four blocks that make up a four unit apartment. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And how you deal with those, like... Whether your commercial centers grow has to do with how many units are around your commercial centers, whereas whether your apartments grow has to do with how many office blocks are next to it. And trying to keep those straight was a little confusing. The other thing that was super confusing is keeping track of adjacency rules, because first off, it's adjacency in three dimensions. It's orthogonally adjacent in X, Y and Z axis. So that's confusing for starters. Yeah. So. So diagonals never, ever, 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 ever count. But you're now not just thinking diagonally in two dimensions. You're thinking like up and over is not adjacent anymore. Got it. So that's kind of funny. But what's weird about it is there's in the construction phase where you're taking the block that you have drafted and you're placing it on the board. You are not allowed to place a residence block adjacent to another residence block. Likewise, you're not allowed to place a commercial block next to another commercial block adjacent to it. On the flip side, though, when you, when the growth phase happened, you must place it adjacent there. You have to grow it outwards in an adjacent fashion from your existing apartment unit. And that was something that uh, the new players had a little bit of a hard time keeping straight in their brain also. Now, having said that and thinking it through for this episode, I can probably do a lot better job of explaining it because sure. I think I did a fair job of explaining it to you right now. Yeah. But the third thing I learned is that the opening placement is shockingly important. Like, you know, just that one block town hall that you put down really actually matters. Those first couple blocks you put down and how you can get that initial growth outwards from there really drives the rest of the game because it's pretty easy to block something into a corner so that it just will never grow. Because one of the challenges, there's an outside row that's the suburbs, but those suburbs can never be more than one block tall. So you think you're being really smart by having this thing grow on the outskirts of your city. And then you realize you're like, oh, I can't actually grow that thing on the outside other than up. And it can only go sideways, but it's boxed in on both sides. 
So I think the common response I've heard now through two playthroughs is at the end of it, most people had said, hey, wow, I really get it now. I really would love to run this thing back. So that's usually the best sign in a game. If people would like to play it again at some point in time, whether it be one in a row or in a couple of weeks, that's that's usually a good sign. Yep, I agree. And so I I absolutely love this game and can't wait to teach it to you. Well, I'm excited to try it because it seems painful. Like whenever I look over to the table, it's just a bunch of people like furrowing their brows and looking down at these small little colored blocks with a lot of anger. And I like those games. I mean, Metro X is one of my favorite game. And we were playing Metro X last night to wrap up the game. And I think I flipped over a card and three of you at the same time said, are you effing kidding me? And I was like, I've never, there's never, I've never heard more swearing in one game of a roll and write than we did in last ever. night's game and of Metro X. And it's not like we're interacting, being mean <laughs> to each other. It's just like the hand we're dealt and how dickish this thing that we're having to deal with is. It's just, it's fun. It almost feels like you're in the trenches for a lack of better term, just trying to oh, the, suffer yeah. through. The draws were atrociously bad last night. It was, I guess the upside is it was hosing all of us. Oh, but. great. Yeah, it was all, we were all doing evenly <laughs> poorly. But yeah, I, I really want to try that game. I, I think it's going to be something right. that's in my wheelhouse, and uh, I like abstracts-ish with theme, so cool. I think it's a nice mix. The movements themselves are pretty easy, but trying to place them smartly so that they grow and generate you more money is really hard. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited. The next game we played after that was the all-time classic Glory to Rome by Carl Chuddick and Cambridge Games Factory. I love this game. I haven't played it in far too long, and we had a group of newbies that had heard about it and had never actually experienced the joy that is Glory to Rome in person. So we were able to pull that out, set it up, teach it, and play it. And uh, yep, I think we got some new Glory to Rome fans that have been created as a result. Yeah, it's weird to think that we haven't actually played it in a while because that is such a game that we love. I mean, it's one of my favorite games and we haven't played it. Yeah, I'm going to blame you for this one. No, this is not my fault. I've been carrying it with me to game night literally every game night for the past month and a half. Right. Maybe maybe pitch it because I love Glory to Rome. God, I love Glory to Rome. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. I think I just need to be a little more aggressive with getting it out. The the problem is, as the problem has been so often, is, hey, it became 11 o'clock and we didn't get to finish the game. Fun. Yeah. The 11 o'clock thing hurts games like Glory to Rome where it's maybe 1030. We wrapped up a bigger game. Let's play something smaller when now we're just going to play a roll and write and leave at 1102 when we're kicked out. Right. You know, the thing about Glory to Rome, too, is that last you know, the fourth quarter is when it gets really fun because that's when all the really stupid stuff is happening. Right. It's just like the everything. Well, I got 13 architects, so I'll figure out yeah. what I'm happening with that. I'm going to lay down four foundations and I'm going to put down uh, eight materials here and bam, bam, bam. I just completed three buildings. Right. Next. The game's over. Cool. Who's up next? So we got to play it, but unfortunately, we did have to quit when things were starting to get really interesting. Ah, oh, that sucks. Oh, well, just means that we'll have to get to the table again. So one thing that we uh, have been talking about with a lot of these games, it's absolutely no secret that Jake and I are massive fans of Euro games. Those are most of the games we talk about, and we really enjoy them. And uh, Jake, I'm not going to lie, there's a part of me that dies every time somebody kind of harumps about something being a soulless Euro. And why would you bother playing that? It's just pushing around cubes. And well, if I was going to be honest, that is really what's happening. Well, that's, but, what, that's what board games are, at least some level of abstraction, right? Sure. But I think we think that that is a rather short-sighted view of the entire corner of gaming on that one. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to have a discussion on, air quotes, soulless games 
that actually do manage to evoke a theme and that we look at it and if you could really apply any other theme to it, yet somehow they manage to pull a theme out of it and make you feel at some level that thing that you're doing. Agreed. And mine aren't always Euro style engine management games. So I chose a one game that's just kind of a game I didn't really think would be as thematic as it ended up being. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And by the way, I, I guarantee this is going to be controversial. Some of you are not going to that game is totally themeless. And, you know, that's your opinion. These are just games that have evoked themes for us. Absolutely. So why don't you start it off with the reason detra today of Town Center? Because I know that's the first one on your list. It is. And this is why I came up with this topic. After playing this game, both times I've played it, I've been really surprised at how something that at the end of the day really is a completely themeless abstract block laying game. Yet the rules have all been tailored in ways that make sense around growing a city. You put in offices and offices are expensive, so you got to pay some money. Then if you have too many offices, well, you need places for your workers to live. So then your, your residences will grow. And by the way, if you have a lot of residences, then you need places for them to shop and go get their hair done and all that. And then the commercial centers will grow around that. And your city can grow up based on how tall your elevators are. And there's all these little touch points that at the end of the day, you really look at it and you really feel like you're making decisions to make your little city grow and be nicer and taller. And you look at my little flat sprawly thing that's really non-optimal and you go, well, that's kind of a sad little city. And then you look over at Stephen's amazing castle in the sky that's a full five layers tall, and it looks like Manhattan Island. Right. And I think that's really cool. Right. And all it is is just little small cube, right, of different colors. It's five different colored cubes. I mean, you've got yellow, black, blue, green, and red cubes. Right. And I guess a purple one. Right, but once you paint in the lines of those colors, and you could say, okay, well, that's a bougie millennial apartment that's named something stupid. And that one is, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to, it's, it's fun to piece together and kind of write your own story about these games. And it's fun that that provides you the, the tapestry or uh, scaffolding <laughs> thematic pun for it. <laughs> there you go. I don't have much to say beyond this one. We've talked about this at length already in this episode and the last episode, but I, I wanted to kick that one off as sort of the, uh, the game emeritus of this topic wow. <laughs> for which this entire topic exists. Absolutely. So I figured any game discussion that had, you know, Reason Detra and Bougie and it also needed a a game emeritus thrown onto it as well. God, we look like we're smart. We're probably going to get a bunch of comments about our using words wrong in this episode, which is probably correct. (laughs) And pronouncing wrong. I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, for sure. All right. So after kicking that off and explaining the reason for living, Jake, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with your number one choice for thematic games you didn't think would be thematic? I am going to talk about a game about one of my favorite beverages. So you folk probably have heard me wax poetically about coffee in the past, but I like more than just coffee. A good nighttime beverage that Ann and I are big fans of is wine. We will often buy a big bottle of wine, buy a couple of bottles of Pinot Noir, which is our favorite, and drink those on like a Tuesday night. It is great. So when I heard that there is a game, I heard, I don't think I was actually of legal drinking age when I first bought this game, but when I heard that there was a game about wine... That seems something that'd be very interesting to me. I'm speaking, of course, of Viticulture by Jamie Stegmeyer, Morton Monrad Peterson, and Alan Stone. So Viticulture, what you're doing is the entire production of wine, from grape to bottle to, hell, tours and everything. And really what it is, is it's a simple worker placement game, with the kind of catch being there's different seasons. So you have the same number of workers throughout the entire year. And let's say you want to do a bunch of stuff that are in the winter, you're going to pass through all the summer actions just so you can wait and do the winter actions. And 
as someone who's very interested in actual viticulture, I took a winemaking class in college. I'm a food scientist, all, all this stuff, yada, yada. It's really fun how much I feel this represents the making and production of wine. So certain wine grape varietals need specific trellises or watering if they're really water needy. And certain different varieties of grape just produce better wines. And it's really neat to be able to maximize all that and put them down on your little crush pads and then convert those crush pads into bottle of wines in your cellar there and keep on getting better and better. And then your cellar may be too small. And I kind of try to figure that out by that you don't have the right technology to age them properly. So they probably start turning into vinegar if you try to go too far with them. And all this fun stuff that really seems to replicate the theme of wine culture while still really just being a really fun work or placement game. The one thing that I hate about this game thematically, and it bothers me so much, is if you have grapes on the crush pad that you've actually crushed and are just kind of soaking, they get better at the end of the year. And it drives me up the wall because I don't know why they would. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, cool. So did you did you uh, mash and macerate all those grapes? Yeah, I certainly did. Cool. Sounds good. Let's leave them there for a year. We'll get back to them next year. It'll be great. <laughs> It'll turn out great. They're going to be so bitter from sitting on all their skins for years. Oh, they're going to be just moldy and disgusting. So aside from that, I think this game does a great job of evoking that theme. What do you think, Mark? I agree. I have only played this once. I have since acquired that game and I've been looking. I think I've suggested this game half a dozen times since then. Oh, let's play it, including last night. <laughs> I brought it. I actually ended up bringing up. We, we were at six, which we probably could have played Viticulture at six, but it's just so long. Literally, I've had friends play Viticulture yeah. at six. It took four hours and they were playing really slow and drinking wine and such, but didn't want to put us through that. I think the one time I played it, we played it at three and we were done in 90 minutes squares. Oh, it's a perfect low player count game. It's wonderful. Well, that's one that uh, I guess I didn't realize was going to take that long. And, uh, you know, theme wise too, keeping it on topic with that one. I love the gameplay of it, but I, I would agree with you too. kind of every step of the way to me that makes a game thematic is if you look at a game and there is a conjunction between the things that you do in the game that both make sense thematically and make you score better in the game. So like if you do the thematic thing, you will do better in the game. And that's very much the case in this one. You want to grow grapes. You want to get them bottled. You want to put them in the cellar. You want to do all these things that both make sense thematically and earn you victory points on that one. So I think this is a great choice in this category. I completely agree. I think it's just a wonderful little game. Viticulture punches above its weight, I think, with a little bit of depth to it. I think you can really math it out. It's really fun. The expansion Tuscany to it is wonderful. We've talked about it pretty at length, but yeah, I think it's a wonderful thematic game. Next time we play, we should all decide that we're going to buy a glass of wine or a bottle of wine at a fantasy flight and drink their crap that they have there. I think it's Stutter Home or something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's a great right? idea. Or maybe have like a nice bottle of wine night and something and theme this game and then play Vinos after. So anyway, that is Viticulture. I got a better idea. Any chance you could talk Anna into playing this? Maybe. Uh, I'll try to teach her this summer because that would be a great couple activity. Bottle of wine in this. Because Heather would love this game Sweet. a lot. Yeah, we'll have to try. So that is Viticulture by Jamie Stegmeyer and Stonemeyer Games. Speaking of games where when you want to do things that make sense thematically and points wise, bringing them together, there's one particular game designer that I think nails this one in spades. All of his games are very thematic. And at the same time, they're also extremely cube pushery Euroy. I don't know how he does that, but uh, that author to me is Vidal Lacerda. I could honestly pick most of his games and look at that and say, well, yeah, it really is just sort of an abstract game. But at the same time, the rules and the theme back each other up pretty well. Well, and, and also don't forget about the art as well. I mean, the Eno tool art helps you bring it in to a beautiful place on most of his games that he's done with Eagle Griffin. Yeah, oh, for sure. I honestly think I could have picked 
any of his games on that one. I mean, Vinyos, I think, is probably every bit as thematic as Viticulture is. And we need to actually play that to figure that out. I I think Lisboa really is an interesting aspect on rebuilding a city and mining rubble and doing political intrigue. But I think the way the gallerist does it probably is one of the more thematic ones. It really is a Euro cube pusher. I mean, you have these kind of cubes here that you try to increase the, the you get and you increase the value and you spend some things and you achieve some goals, which really I just described 5000 euro games. But what you do in this game is you are discovering artists. And when you discover them, you commission art and then you get people to come in your gallery and you hype the art to get more people in your gallery and increase the value of your paintings. When you get them more valuable, then you can sell them for additional money and you can achieve some endgame goals. That just made complete sense thematically. And by the way, that's actually more or less how the rules go. Mechanically, it's a little different. You have this interesting kind of following mechanism where you can bump people out and move them around and do a follow-up thing. But just by what I explained to you kind of gives you the forest picture on what you need to do inside that game. Jake, I know you have had a chance to play this one. Would you agree with my assessment of this? I completely agree. And it's fun when you can explain a game to kind of a newbie and you're like, okay, well, I'm just trying to make artists better. I can figure out how to do that. I can get them on social media. I can get them here, get them here, do all this stuff to make their art better. And oh, whoa, I did a whole bunch of money. I got a whole bunch of money from that. Wow, I'm the best artist ever or the best art gallerist, pardon me, ever. It's great. And the one thing that's weird that I kind of don't like about this game, it takes me out a little bit. So like to imagine this like city that all people do is come to the city center and then they get decided what art they're going to go to. It's like, I don't know why they these <laughs> yes. art gallerists wouldn't have spread out and like been in different parts of towns. They didn't capitalize on each other's customers in the hungry, hungry hippos style way. It's like the Epcot center of art galleries where they're all scattered yeah. around the lagoon. Right. But it's funny because it's like the entire world works around this just art institution in our town. So other than that, but it, it, it's it's so thematic and you're right. It's it, it draws it in. Even the fact that all of your little art is either stood up on little uh, the, the what are the things called. You should know this, Mark. You're an artist. Little easels. Yeah. Little you get little easels, easels yeah. that you that you display the art pieces of art on. Right. And-, and they're done in a way so you can actually see them. They look like photorealistic. So when you put them in your gallery, it looks like a three dimensional space. It's wonderful. And the production on this is absolutely on point. Eagle Griffin Games and DNO Tool actually commissioned some pieces of actual art from artists to be to use as the art pieces that are on there. So oh, there cool. are little, little, yeah, all of the art pieces on there are actual, you know, not just things that shouldn't say just, but not things that Ian O'Toole just whipped up. He actually got pieces of art from a variety of sources. Got it. Very interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. This is a great thematic pick, which I'd like to play more often, too. I very much like this game. Absolutely. So, you know, if you like a game that has a Euro backpinning of it and evokes a theme very well, you'd do far worse than going down really any of the Eagle Griffin Vita Lacerda offerings. Absolutely. That was the gallerist. I have my number two here, and it's definitely the one that is not the Euro style engine management, resource management style of game. And I'm going to talk about Camel Up by Stefan Bogan. I like to gamble. I go to the casino with some like level of regularity. I used to go to Vegas very often for work conferences, and then I'd play cards out there. I don't really like to bet on races or sports or anything along those lines, but I like the idea of gambling. It's, it's fun. And very few games have actually made me feel that way, but Camel Up definitely fits in that camp of making me feel like I'm actually gambling. So this is a classic game for me and my family. We played at the cabin and we can usually get a full allotment of eight people around the table for watching these five camels race around the board. And 
it is just so fun to hear everybody shout and get really mad when the new thing comes out. And all of a sudden, these people that are usually kind of meek will shake up the big uh, camel pyramid and put it down like they're being the most showman style people in the world to put out the new dice. And it's just really fun to see all that happen around the thing. There's been times where we shake up the last die and put it out and the entire table either scream yes or scream no with people standing up and clapping and stuff just for one die roll. What's also fun about this is I think we could figure out a way to do it with real money. And I think that'd be really fun as well, where everybody buys in for like a dollar and then we do dimes to get money. The only issue being, I think there's more money introduced outside of the game versus actually just being a closed economy. But you've played Camel Up with your family, correct? Do they kind of feel the same way about this? Well, actually, I have not. I have never played the full box version of Camel Up, but I do have Camel Up cards and have played that a number of times with my family. And I'd even say the same thing about that game. I mean, there's definitely, you know, lots of clapping and cheering and so forth when some bizarre card gets flipped up and a dragon ends up jumping over the top of everything else. So, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a really fun theme. And anytime you get people laughing and gambling and betting on the results of things, you're going to feel that sort of racetrack idea in the game. Right. I love your idea of betting a little money on that one. I've always thought that that would be the way to make Formula Day not stink. Right. The same way where it's like, OK, everybody's racing for slips. Everybody put in your ten dollars. Well, yeah, because a lot of times, OK, you do your one lap race and by turn 14, everybody just kind of goes, oh, well, I'm going to go through in six gear. And if I crash, then I can be done mercifully. But yeah, if there was 10 people playing and there was 100 bucks on the line, my guess is everybody'd care a little bit more about trying to make that last turn. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's always funny because every once in a while when you're gambling, you'll talk about board games or you're sitting at the table and people are like, oh, do you play it for money? And it's like, no, you just play for win. They're like, well, why would you even do it then? And I kind <laughs> yep. of I think that's a dumb mentality to start with. But there's certain games where if you could just like make everybody care a little bit more, the game would work a little better. And I definitely think Formula D would be one of those to make it better. I would love to try that sometime if we can ever sweet talk a bunch of people and give her a one lap race and see what happens. Absolutely. So that was Camel Up by Stefan Bogan. Both the baseboard game and the card games are buckets of fun. Great. I'm going to whip out what's probably my most controversial pick of the day. And uh, I know you're going to disagree with me on this one, but you know what? I'm going to go forward with it anyway. My number two pick is 18 Lilliput by Lonnie Orgler and published by Fox in the Box Games. 18 Lilliput is a not 18xx that is adjacent to 18xx, and it's really a, a, you know, more of a Euro action card selection game that has a lot of the 18xx theming and underpinning. I mean, think 18xx the card game. One of the things I love about this, and I, I really saw this with my family when I taught them to, that is they really actually identified with the theme. They bonded with the characters in it and the fact that we were building this little railway around this little island and that we were fighting for this thing. You know, they didn't get that stressed out about the economy of it, but they really identified with Mully Ully Gooey and uh, the general and all the other people that were in that box. One of the ways that does that, instead of having privates, you know, private little private companies that give you a perk and some benefits, it abstracts those by making those those characters that I was referring to. And I think that brings that theme forward out of what otherwise is a dry gaming experience. I mean, a lot of 18xxs aren't incredibly thematic. You know, another thing I do to pull that theme forward is, and I know you disagree with this, Jake, but I only play with the thematic tiles in this particular Ugh. title. Uh, Every just, other title. I, I thought it couldn't get worse. I thought your sentence here <laughs> couldn't get worse. I was just sitting here quietly trying to put it, put it away for the podcast, but 
that you've gone too far now, Mark. I agree with you on every other 18xx game. I'd rather play with the very abstract style tiles on this in every other 18xx game. But in 18 Lilliput, I think the theme is as part and parcel of the game as everything else. So therefore, you got to double down on the theme. Your your opinion is valid. You are allowed to have it. I just think it's wrong. <laughs> so with that being out of the way, I just I don't understand why you'd think this game would be thematic. I understand that maybe I'm coming at it from a place of I play train games. I'm hardcore. I get really excited when I see a train, you know, all that stuff. I, I get excited when I get on the subway. Woo, trains. But that being said, I don't really know what could be extracted from this that'd be thematic. All you're doing is selecting cards to build your train empire, which is like the same thing as anything, but really they're root talking games. We have said a bunch of times that literally these games could have a whole bunch of different themes and they'd be just as good. We keep on talking about that, about how, oh, maybe this should be a computer network or maybe it should be a river going through something or irrigation or something along those lines. So it's interesting to hear you say that an 18xx adjacent game is thematic. Even then, I think they could have gone farther. I I agree with you. It's not hardcore dripping with theme. But as 18xx games go, it is. And that's not saying much about 18 Lilliput. It's more saying that I I actually think 18xx would be better if there was deeper theme in it, if they did try harder to make it more about adding more theme to it rather than just being strictly about the geographic location and about the mechanism. Because a lot of, at the end of the day, a lot of the 18xx games are about the mechanisms that are the underpinnings rather than the theme itself. And I've noticed that anytime they manage to inject more theme into the game, I tend to like that game better. Like I like the complicated terrain and i like the volcano blowing up in 1849 i think that makes that game just a 10 out of 10 for me whereas i look at some of the other ones that are pretty generic and really could be anywhere in the world and really are about the mechanisms those are fun but i don't feel them quite the same way yeah and i think that's fair too because there's some musings about like a 18xx game with variable setup like a randomized setup and that just sounds like hell i i would not think 18 Lilliput's thematic i have joked that it's the only 18xx game to scale but aside from that i i don't think this one's too thematic but you're allowed to have your opinions you're allowed to be wrong mark i admit i mean that's just there's there's part of it when i play it though i just sort of get a little bit of an eye bleach feel with uh playing with these fun little general guys and right. these <laughs> and, the, and the silly names and the i don't know it would have been funny if they would have listened to kickstarters and had like little small minis of trains that have different numbers on them and you like physically drive them around on the track because when they actually if you actually see the train cards it's a guy's hand holding out a full-size locomotive and it doesn't even fall off his hand it's fully contained on that so right, you just feel like right. a massive person. If you do that to scale, I mean, those trains would be pretty small. It'd be it'd be cute to see that happen. But I th- I would agree this game's cute, but I would not agree it's thematic. Well, you also play it, make a point of playing with the non-thematic parts of the game. So well, I just like to see quick information gathering is all that matters, Mark. And everything's related to grains. Trains. When you actively hide the theme, I'm not surprised you're not feeling it. Oh, I'd hope that games can get more themes than just small little tracks on a board or else we're going to have to extend this list pretty damn long, Mark. It's going to get out of hand. <laughs> well, like I said, this would be controversial. But again, it's games that I didn't expect to be thematic. And I ended up personally bonding with the theme more than I thought I would. And I understand that virtually nobody that plays this game is going to agree with me. <laughs> but my family, who does not have a background in 18xx, would agree with me. There's probably one person just waiting like, yes, I'm finally validated. <laughs> finally, someone else shares my opinions on 18 Lily being thematic. Well, why don't you take us into another one that <laughs> is, 
is something that maybe could be argued as a pure <laughs> pure abstract. Oh, yeah. Here here comes here comes the, uh, the 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 counterpoint. I'm going to talk about games where you feel like you're starving and decisions are hard. And I'm of course talking about Agricola and Caverna. Either one of those by Uwe Rosenberg. What's fun about this game is it has the growth. You start with a very diminutive steading and you see to grow it to be something bigger and can sustain your whole family. You feel like you put in a lifestyle of work. The pressure of the game first being about how few actions there are and secondarily being that you have to feed your family really, really, really hurt. Because, you, I mean, really, if, you, if you're doing some sort of farming or something, your time is what really matters. You know, I mean, that's all you have is your time. And if it's going to take you all year to build a fence, maybe that could have been spent doing something else better. The other thing that I found was interesting is the pressures of owning more people in your family, not owning. Oh, that's, that's, that's a bad choice of words there. Um, (laughs) the, the, the pressures of feeding your family and making your family bigger because you need more people to help you out on the farm. Like I'm sure a lot of these people, but, but maybe you can't feed them. And that feels really bad when you're like, Oh God, I have to beg for my children. It does evoke this feeling of like subsistence farming is hard. My life is getting really hard. And then finally, I've talked about the story before, but I think it mentions repeating in this point. This game is actually offered one of the most thematic experiences I've had in games. We were playing Agricola for the first time and we were playing, I think, a five player game. And Eric was playing with us and Eric had a whole bunch of wood. He'd a master of the day and he ended up building a giant outside fence around an area that he wasn't even planning to really put any sheeps in. He just wanted to use up all of his spaces so he'd get so less minus points. And it was really interesting to look down at his little steading and think of it as like, oh, he started off with this small thing. He got some sheep, his sheep. He kept on eating them at night. They weren't growing as fast. Then he grew and there became over the years, they became a pretty large flock. And so he needed more grazing area, but he didn't want to just graze them during the day because the wolves started eating them or something. And he put a giant big fence around his entire property line so these sheep could run around and be the best sheep they wanted to be. And it was fun to think of that as a thematic way of just all you're doing is really just different resources and cards to do little actions to work a placement. But it helped evoke a theme of farming for me. And I thought it was really neat. Furthermore, I'd also say that I'm sure there's lots of subsistence farmers that that day came where they had a bumper harvest and they looked at it and went, oh, you know, thank goodness we have enough food to feed our family for the entire next year. And we got a little leftover that we can plant and, you know, grow our, you know, we really made it now. I, you know, I had that feeling playing that game, as I'm sure every medieval family that was trying to live that way had. Right. And it's fun to have the different technologies come out and then you're kind of looking around and you're like, well, why is Bill doing better <laughs> planting carrots than me? It's it's neat. I, I, I think those games are a lot more thematic than people give them credit for. I agree. And I think you really could have picked, well, virtually any Uwe Rosenberg game and hadn't made the same arguments. I looked at my shelf of Uwe Rosenberg games and I was thinking about, you know, Glass Road, that little bit about how you use up some resources and now you get glass. Right. I looked at games like Fields of Arl and doing all the farming there and the TikTok between winter and spring. And now we're doing activities with. I think Fields applies. I don't know if Glass applies. I tried to stay away from the ones that were really mechanism heavy. And when you look down, you didn't look like you build something. That's why I ended up not including that. Right. And same thing with Norwegians, right? I agree with you. Yeah, that's why I didn't include that. But I'd say even in A Feast for Odin, like, you know, you get a band of Vikings together and you go pillaging and you get cool stuff. (laughs) That's pretty thematic. They get there. Yeah, completely agree. 
So anywho, that was Agricola or Caverna by Uwe Rosenberg, his starvation duo. I don't know. There's probably a couple other games. that Ode to starvation. Ode to starvation. That works out great. What's your last (laughs) game, Mark? Bring us home. Okay, this might be the most thematic game that I own. It's so thematic that it's a really heavy, difficult, crunchy, mechanism-driven game that's incredibly fiddly, yet it's been my daughter's favorite game since she was about seven. And it's 100% due to the theme. So much so that she finds it really easy to play. She completely understands it. She doesn't always make great strategic decisions, But having said that, this is one of her absolute favorite games, and I'm referring to Dungeon Pets by Vlada Chavadl by Czech Games Edition. Every little step of this game is soaked with theme, right down to the rule book and the explanations and the witty way it's written and the illustrations and the mechanisms, because it really is a Euro game. You're doing worker bidding. Then you're doing worker placement. You're really building an economy around growing up your little animals and meeting their needs. And then you have a final round goal and an end of game goal, which are kind of couched in being a show or selling them off to buyers. But every little monster has a name and a personality and a theme. And it doesn't just consume resources. It's a carnivore. So it needs meat and or it needs vegetables and it poops. So you need to actually assign some things to clean up poop. That's sort of your waste resources much in the same way that like pollution is in a game like uh, Antiquity or something like that. Every step of this game is either decorated in a thematic way or fits in thematically with the rules or tells a story. And you really do feel like you're running this perverted little pawn shop of these, you know, nasty little monsters that might bite your arm off. And it's fun to see them grow up, too. You know, I mean, you can really game it and say, okay, well, in six rounds, this horny guy is going to need a whole bunch of XYZ resource. Well, yeah. And furthermore, I'd say if you don't game it, you're going to get absolutely throttled in this game. But if you think about it and you just kind of like take a step back and focus less on as a gamer, just, you know, I mean, kids need more food as they get bigger. My mom would always talk about like, geez, your friends eat a lot now, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm a a 12 year old. Trust me. I know. Right. Right. It's like how much? Jesus. Okay. All right. Um, And so it's fun to kind of see all that stuff happen. I'd agree with you. I think this game is very thematic. I think it's fun. It's just thematic of something that's kind of zany and out there. And so I could see some people saying like, well, this is kind of weird because it's just, I mean, you're goblins running a little monster farm. This game, I think, would be stupid thematic if you were like horse auctioneers, but I probably wouldn't like the game as much or something along those lines. So. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I think that it is so cute and engaging is the fact, and well, here I go, maybe cute is right. part of it too. Don't beat me up on this. <laughs> Mark just likes cute things. I apparently like you cute heard things. It here first. Well, you know, I mean, I do have a family that likes playing games, and, you know, if it's cute, it's going to go a long way in my family. They are these really whimsical, goofy little monsters that are these horrific things that make a mess out of it and try to break out and try to eat your goblins and run away and put them in the hospital. Yet, you know... This little thing that's an eyeball on legs is uh, absolutely adorable. Agreed. Yeah, it's awesome. It's fun. It's really cool. I wish they'd reprint this game with a little bit updated graphic design. I found some of the spots kind of hard to parse, but it was really thematic. And it was fun to see our little guys growing up and being sold out and being like, oh, God, this guy's got too big. We need to give him a new pen. He's too magically powerful now. <laughs> yeah, it's a good game. It was I'm, I'm happy with our play we had of this game. I have doubled down on theme, too, with adding poop meeples and little steak meeples and all that other stuff to represent things that aren't just little green and red cubes and brown cubes. Yeah, the little chops. And they're, they're, they are pretty adorable. I will give you that. Anyway, that maybe is the most thematic game in my collection, Dungeon Pets by Vlada Chavadl and Czech Games Edition. 
All right. Well, hopefully we'll be right around an hour this time. I think we did it well. We're getting better at this, Mark. I think we're pretty darn close, and my editor thanks you for that. All right. Well, that sounds good. Hope you have a good rest of your night, Mark. Hey, catch you next time, everybody. For The Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark, and that's Jake. Good night, everybody. This has been The Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.